0: This is the last company that I'm ever going to do, right? Like I'm pretty, pretty clear. Like I want to keep growing this till the day I die. Now we might do more products and we might buy companies at some point and we might do more than staffing and recruitment in eight years or 10 years or 15 years or whatever. But this is, I'm never going to start something from zero again. I'm never going to sell this.
1: All right, everybody. I had Sean Malapukar on the episode today. I'm going to give you a quick recap of everything we talked about. You'll definitely want to stick around and hear the entire conversation. Uh, we started out about how started out talking about how he built his SaaS company, totally bootstrapped with his father to 200 employees, uh, and like what all those levers were that as he was growing the company, what levers he hit along the way to go from 10k MRR to 50k MRR to 150, and then eventually to 500k MRR. Uh, he talked a lot about, you know, what what I was actually most excited to hear about was how he nurtures talent. He takes a really uh, unique approach. I should say it's unique to the SaaS and the tech industry, a really unique approach to how he hires, how he nurtures people inside his company. And also he talked about the the concept, This this is his lifetime business. So he's not planning to sell it. He's not going to start other companies. He's building this company for his entire life. And he sees that, you know, everything he's doing is on a 50 or 60 year time horizon. So he's, you know, instead of making bets in years, he's making bets in decades. Uh, so definitely stick around for the whole episode. There's a lot of really good stuff in the middle and the end that you're going to want to hear. And I hope you enjoy. Sean Malapukar on the episode here today, uh, Recruit C- founder and CEO of Recruit CRM. Uh, really excited. So you guys are like you know, I think you've scaled quite a bit since 2017 at like 250 employees. Uh, You're in the ATS and recruiting niche for uh, recruiting firms and staffing firms. So uh, super interested to dig into it. Uh, You know, uh, we can just to kick it off, maybe we can start just to kind of go over the business a little bit here in your words, what you guys do. And then I'd love to, you know, kind of dive into some nuances within that.
0: Yeah, so we're actually just about 200 people. LinkedIn is a funny way of inflating all your numbers up, which is great. Uh, <laughs> but just about 200 people, uh, we started writing code for recruit CRM right around like the tail end of 2017, and we had our first customer in 2018. But what's what's funny is our story. Uh, so most 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 startups have un- their own unique stories and so on, uh, but if, I'm one of the few. Bootstrapped software entrepreneurs that started their software company with their dad, uh, which is which is probably less common doing a tech business with your family. So I, you know, my co-founder is my father, which is a very weird, uh, weird situation. But but if if you if you look at it outside of our relationships, we're we're very complementary. So way back when I was a little child growing up, uh, dad was in the army doing anti-terrorist stuff. then he, uh, he, he got out of the army, went to business school. When he went to business school, I was like a five-year-old. So I was sort of like, hey, going to business school campus with him and so on back in India. Uh, he graduated and he started working for a company called RunStut, which is the world's largest recruiting and staffing company. Uh, Dad became CEO of their India business uh, over a period of uh, you know six years, I think. Uh, and he continued growing that business. Uh, then ADP came into India and they bought RunStut's payroll processing business, because in India, back then, Runstead did everything, uh, not just staffing, but also payroll. And he became CEO of ADP India, ADP is a Fortune 50 company, the world's largest payroll company. And that sort of built our chops on how to run a recruiting business, how to do payroll, and everything in that sort of part of the world. Uh, now, I was a kid at that time, I grew up, I was shipped off to college. Uh, so all of the rents that and ADP time paid my dad really well and he used that money to pay for my ripoff American college education. So I thank both those companies every day because, like, you know, I think it's it's it, it's a fortune not to have debt, uh, college debt. So that's a that's a pure privilege. And I only have it because, uh, you know, I was born in a privileged situation. Uh, so went to college in, in the Midwest in America uh, to Indiana University. They have a little business school called the Kelley School of Business on like, you know, the Google the the web U.S. news and like Business Week the kind of rankings you sort of look at they they ranked all right so I was like hey I got in here Stanford's not going to take me so let's go and so uh, went there finished graduated in two and a half years moved to Mountain View to work in tech and you know uh, around that time I was talking with my dad and he said he wants to start a tech company but he doesn't know any tech. Uh, I knew enough tech to like just about get started and work with a few developers to like hack something together. And we were like, you know, recruiting and staffing, I know tech, let's do this. And that's how we started it. We're, the total investment we put into this business is well under $100,000 in cash. And today we produce well over that every month in free cash flow, right? Uh, so it's, it's been a good good five, six years.
1: That's an awesome story. And there's actually a couple of threads that I want to come back to. Uh, So uh, I'll I'll put a pin on a couple of things. One specifically is kind of like scratching your own itch. I love when people build businesses that scratch their own itch, as opposed to like, you know, in the tech world, there's so many tech people that just go in and build companies and niches they know nothing about, uh, just because they think it's a cool niche and there's money there. And You know, I think the the most successful companies are companies that the founders understood a specific market wedge or a pain point and went into a market very intentionally because they understood the market Uh, so that I want to come back to some of that. Also, I I saw you had two companies before uh, Recruit CRM. I saw that one, uh, you didn't get product market fit and shut it down. And the second one pivoted into Recruit CRM. So I want to come back to that later.
0: So uh, what we did, and and this is super important because so the first company I did was the one I graduated. So I graduated in two and a half years instead of the standard four, because I'd started a company with classmates, like a startup in college. And we raised like an angel round for it, like a couple hundred grand, which felt like a crazy amount of money way back when you're like 18. And so as a 19 year old, we raised a couple hundred grand. And I and two of my startup uh, co-founders, we gave ourselves fancy titles. I was the CEO, one of them was COO, another one was CTO. It's a complete joke. When I think about it, it was the three of us. uh, We were like, we graduated. uh, We moved. One of us dropped out. I and my other co-founder were both, uh, two of us were Indian. One of us was from LA, US citizen. Uh, So he could drop out. We couldn't really drop out because then we'd get deported. So we had to graduate to self-sponsor our visas, right? Uh, So. We graduated and we moved uh, to San Francisco, the Silicon Valley to work in tech. That startup didn't work out. Uh, And and sort of around the time where we were trucking along on it and figuring out what to do, that was when I was already having conversations with my dad about doing something together. So when we came back to India, our first product was basically, uh, when we started working with those two or three developers, we started working on something called My Stuff. And the idea behind My Stuff was... We wanted to build software so that large companies, uh, like large logistics companies and delivery companies, especially in India, like we have a Flipkart in India, which is like India's Amazon, and like our our version of DoorDash, which is like Swiggy and so on, they need to hire tens of thousands of bike delivery drivers every month. And we would build staffing software for them. So we wanted to start by building so- staffing software for mass recruitment. And six months into that, we sort of realized hey, this is. This is not working out. We should just build what we know, which is staffing software for staff and firms, because we understand recruitment and staffing firms a lot better than 50,000 person corporations that needed to recruit thousands of drivers every month for themselves. And so that's how we pivoted. And it just made so much more sense because it was a much recruit CRM was a much more natural fit into what we understood versus just just trying to go out there because we thought there was an opportunity.
1: So you did my staff for what, like 10 months or something is what your LinkedIn says?
0: Yes, it's uh, probably even less than that. So sometime to sometime to it's the same team, just so you know. So it's the same company. It's the same same C Corp. Uh, it's the same or in India, it was private limited company back then Then we flipped into a C Corp. But it was the same team, same engineers, same everything, just different domain and different like use case. But it's basically one company, right? Uh, recruit CRM and my staff.
1: I want to take a quick break from the episode and say, if you're enjoying this content, the best way you can say thank you is to subscribe. So if you're on YouTube, hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. And if you're on one of the podcast platforms, hit the subscribe button there as well. And also share it out to your friends and colleagues. If you find this content useful and you think other people will enjoy it as well, please send it out. And back to the episode. Cool. Well, let's dig into that. So uh So you, start, you started out trying to build software to help these like logistics delivery companies hire at scale. And yeah. like, what did, you know, what what was like step one? Did you build anything? Did you just try to sell a vision? Yeah, yeah. So,
0: and, so uh, the thing we did was we tried to build the basics of what we thought would make sense. And then because of my dad's experience at at, at, at Runstead, a lot of the folks that worked with him or technically worked for him in his teams were now, you know, global heads of talent and like country managers for HR and talent for these companies. So we actually literally, the companies I named, we went to them and we got meetings with them, like one phone call. And then when we met them, they said, Oh, this is great. Blah, blah, blah. But then when we said, Hey, would you buy this? And how much would you buy it for? They're like, we have to think about it. So it wasn't. So even though we had like crazy business connect, like in terms of like getting, getting a meeting, we we didn't have the ability to close because they didn't want a solution that did that. Cause we we hadn't really done market research to figure that out. It was more like, you know, dad was like, hey, this might this is an opportunity. We should do this together. And we started working on it with like two developers back then.
1: So how how were they doing it before? Like just manually like spreadsheets, or how were they doing yeah, this it, hiring? It
0: did it manually, because in India it was very it, it's a very low value recruitment, right? So the the average delivery driver in India makes like $200 a month post all fees, right? Like literally like, uh, and these are delivery bike riders uh, delivering packages. So they make two, maybe $300, $350, right? That that sort of range. Uh, net of, net pay, because like a lot of money goes into like uh, the mortgage on their, their their bike and their more like their fuel and, you know, gas costs and so on. So once you deduct all of that, these folks make 200 to $250 and their turnover is like 90 days. So most of them quit within 90 days of being hired because it's such a shitty job, right? Because you're doing like 30 packages, you're barely getting paid. You're, you're getting like a dollar a package or like 50 cents a package or something. Uh, and thus, these companies were hiring like 7, 8, 10,000 delivery drivers each per month because there's so many people in India and so many packages should be shipped and so, much, so on. But because these people only lasted three months on an average and they were relatively low value hires, the recruitment fee on hiring someone like this is basically $20. So the kind of recruiters that would recruit these people were people that would literally, uh, for the lack of a better word, go into some version of a slum and be like, hey, uh, XYZ company is hiring 100 logistic drivers who wants to come. And if you want to come show up at this place at this time tomorrow, and you'd have 100 bike riders show up, <laughs> right? And that that was, it's like mass recruitment. You're not necessarily like, no one has a resume. Everyone's just showing up and you're with their, you know, ID cards or whatever, just to make sure they're a legit uh, person. Uh, but so they were like, hey, we don't need software to do this. It's it's like a very low value. The problem is it's a use, this, the tech solved the problem, but it was so low value for them. It wasn't worth investing software tech solutions, so on so forth.
1: So what was it, like an outreach tool to reach that community of people that would yeah, accept a job was, like that?
0: Yeah, it was basically a tool for hiring managers in each location because most of these companies have fulfillment centers across the country to be able to say, hey, I need X number of people in my fulfillment center this week, this month, this quarter. And then that being routed to the hiring agencies they worked with. So it was still working with staffing firms but we were trying to sell to the company would then give it to these for the lack of a better word bottom of the pyramid staffing firms you know where the recruiter themselves is not super skilled these are people that are just going out you know probably didn't go to high school but they're able to go into a place and get 100 bike riders uh and so it was going to give them the tools to be able to go in and register those people with their id cards and so on so you didn't have people that had worked for you two years ago come back and try to work for you again and try to get some of your freebies or joining bonuses and so on I got gotcha. it okay. the same people it's like a it's like a trial there's someone who comes in signs up with you Sixty days later, they quit. A month later, they sign up again, and you know the first month you get like an extra bonus or whatever, right? For,
1: but the companies you know, didn't really care; like it wasn't worth solving that problem. Like if the same person yeah, gets the bonus yeah, three times, it, who cares? Yeah, so
0: market because because th- that was sort of the year where each of these companies in India had raised over a billion dollars each. Raised a billion, not a billion dollar valuation, right? They were so they were just burning through money like crazy. So it was just about getting shit done, and they didn't really care about implementing software and tools for this use case. They cared about implementing software and tools for hiring their vice presidents and their more sophisticated talent that costs a dollars or $200,000 a year. So India is a very steep job market in the sense that we have people that make half a million dollars a year, right? Uh, in salary, not business owners. I'm talking about working professionals, right? At top companies, you know, top CXO types who make three, four, five, six, seven hundred thousand $700,000 a year. Some make a million a year. But we have... A shit ton of people at the bottom of the pyramid making a hundred dollars a month, which is why the per capita income, if I'm not wrong, is something like three and a half thousand dollars.
1: Wow. Okay. Yeah. Definitely. Uh,
0: or, or two thousand take- dollars. But then there's working population and non-working population, and so on. But but yeah, it, it's it's single low single-digit thousands of dollars, right? Because the population pyramid is steep. So anything that's an unskilled work, where the person just needs to know how to ride a motorbike, which is the base mode of transportation, uh, everyone knows how to do it. So you can get that talent very easily. So you don't need tools to optimize that. Versus, if you're looking for a VP of engineering, who knows like a certain stack, now that talent costs a lot like exponentially more, versus in America, the difference isn't that much. Like if you hire like a deli- an Uber delivery driver, does not uh, does not make one percent of what a VP of engineering makes, right? Or a VP of engineering in the US doesn't make a hundred times what a yeah it might be like
1: ten or twenty percent, maybe ten percent, I would guess, but it's an order of magnitude at least difference. Yeah, yeah, it's,
0: it's, it's, yeah. So if the differential here is the delivery driver makes thirty grand a year, and the VP of engineering makes three hundred grand a year, in India the delivery driver makes two thousand dollars a year. And the VP of engineering makes like 100 grand a year or 150 grand a year or like, you know, something that's like 40, 50, 60, 70 times more, right? Because yeah. skilled talent is harder to find, but like unskilled talent, like, or, uh, you know, workforce, crazy amounts. Interesting.
1: So what was the moment in my staff, like when you guys said, all right, forget this delivery driver thing. We're building a recruiting CRM. Like, what was the moment that you yeah. like, that you had that so, realization?
0: So, like after one of the meetings we had with one of these companies, and I don't want to don't take names, but we bas- we basically uh, they basically told us that hey, why would we even want to spend money to do this? Because like we don't even put this on Excel right now. We literally just have these recruitment drives, and a thousand people show up, and we just take two hundred, and like, and then we we only we only enter the people in our system that are selected and then they go into our whatever, you know, a delivery onboarding app, right? Sort of like what DoorDash would have or whatever. But they don't really go through a strict selection process because it's just not worth the cost.
1: Interesting. So, so I'm, I'm picturing you guys like walking out of the meeting uh, with whatever big company. and
0: Yeah, you're just getting out of that room and you're like, hey, they like, what we spend like the last six or seven months building was like completely useless because the tech would work, but like they just don't care, right? It's just so irrelevant. And then the second problem is this, right? So you're a large company. This logistics piece is like one of your important, you know, one of the important things you you do. But within your talent acquisition team, the fancy senior talent acquisition people are working on the fancy roles because they want to hire your next head of engineering or head of sales or head of, you know, operations or whatever and it's your junior less important quote unquote and probably even less less sophisticated less educated less paid recruiters that are responsible for this dirty part of your business so the even if these people want to buy your software they really can't cuz management doesn't care cuz their boss who's the head of talent doesn't care as much and even if he cared he needed to get approved from the head of hr would then need to get approved from the CFO to buy this, and this wasn't big, in, like a big enough problem for them to like push that through.
1: So, what what was that conversation like about the pivot to recruit CRM? What was that conversation like for you? Guys? Yeah,
0: so, so I did, I, it was it was it was as we were in the car with me and my dad, we were driving back from Mumbai to Pune, which is Pune is where we live, Mumbai is where the city's at, um, and it was like a two-hour drive, and like sometimes uh, sometimes sometime during that conversation, like at some point we were like, hey, we need to like to not do this. And then I think in the beginning, dad was like, hey, like what, so we just scrap all of this code and like, you know, screens and database and everything that has been built over the last six months. And I was like, I don't think we'll ever get back to it, but we won't delete it, we'll just keep it on the side and maybe we'll use it one day and we still have never used it and we're doing millions of dollars in revenue, (laughs) right? But that was was like an internal conversation around doing that. And I was like, hey, the story makes a lot more sense, right? You ran a staffing and recruiting company. Let us build tech for staffing and recruiting companies, because there we have some insight into what's useful, what's not useful. Here we have no clue because we've never run logistics type businesses at scale. Interesting.
1: So, so you so you made the you made the decision to pivot, and then like, what was step one? Like, what did you do the next day after that decision?
0: Yeah, yeah, I made a web page because this time I didn't want to start writing code before like someone said that they wanted this. So I created a little web page, one single screen, uh, which basically said recruit CRM all in one software. I think we we put in a price that is like one fifth of what we charge today. Like we tried to see how much all the other tools in this category cost. And we were like, let's charge way less. Uh, Or at least in the beginning, just to now, now that's not the case anymore as, you know, the product has become more premium and become highly rated. But in the beginning, it was like, hey, let's see if someone will buy this thing for like 30 bucks a month or something, right? And uh, we we put in a web page and we said, we're making something like this is going to be awesome. Put in your email if you're interested. Uh, and we did some basic SEO. I wrote a blog post about, about it. And we had 30 people put in their emails onto that web page. Very basic SEO, but like did SEO for like recruiting agency software, which is like a very specific keyword, barely has any searches. Right. But like, you know, uh, we wanted to, it to be as specific as possible. And I was like, "This is awesome! Thirty people want to try out what we have," and uh, when we checked, we realized they were from different countries, and we were like, "Hey, we can build like a global global company this way." And then, and was it mostly like like
1: North America, or was it Europe, or like where
0: Europe, uh, Europe, and North America, and a little bit of Asia, but mostly Europe and North America. Uh, And our first customer was someone in the UK. Our different countries which is insane, like literally blew my mind. Like 10 actual customers once we actually went live 10 months later. Wow,
1: that's awesome. So, uh, all right. So, you, so you put up the landing page and you get these thirty customers. How? So, how from we the get day up, we,
0: get, we get thirty people who say that they will sign up to us if we have a product. We don't have anything back then. We get one.
1: Thirty up. leads, right? Thirty prospects. So, so from the time you put up the landing page to like getting the thirty, how long did that take? And then what did was SEO the only thing you used to drive the it's traffic? Cool.
0: Yeah, yeah 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 that's it seo no, no money we spent no money we we spent no money at all on advertising till we got to like 10 grand in monthly recurring revenue and that was way way later so it took us it took us like 6 months to build something that people could actually log into and use cuz probably because we weren't the best programmers or developers uh, and then we made it a free beta so people could try it out. I think of the original 30, only like three actually set up the trial. So they gave us a lot of confidence, but no cash. And then they used it for free for three months. And then the awesome part was when, I think a month and a half into the beta, this one person in the Netherlands reached out to us. And he was an intern at this new recruiting company that had like two people. And he said, hey, uh, how do I buy it? And we were like, let's set up Stripe. (laughs) Because there was no way to give us money at that point. So next next week and a half, we set up like this. We created a subscription stripe, created like a plan, so they could go in and swipe their card. And you know, I think I had like a mental like uh, you know orgasm for the lack of a better word uh, when, I, when I saw. I was like, "Damn, this is the best thing in the world!" Right? This is like the because because think right from the time I started like being an entrepreneur in college, raised angel money, did like a consumer startup. This was the first time someone truly like bet on us and give us money yeah because yeah, really the, cool. the first startup i did was like a marketplace so you'd buy goods from each other so it didn't quite they weren't buying tech they were just like hey use college textbook and you made like a one percent commission on it so it was like you sell a hundred dollar book you make a buck so it's was, it was a horrible, horrible horrible idea which is probably why i died right but this was the first time someone was like hey here's two grand right for your software for the code your team has written
1: I mean and there there's just, literally for me there's like there's no better feeling than just like coming up with an idea and then building it and then putting it out into the world and like getting people to say this is awesome I want to pay for this like I need this there, yeah, there's no better feeling awesome. than that
0: It was awesome I'm, I'm I'm telling you at that like that felt way better than like the 100k deals we close now right cuz we close 100k deals right we go out and we do like four or five demos whatever and someone buys us a 100 grand or 120 grand and it doesn't feel as good as it still feels good, but it doesn't that that was just like next level, right? Like that was like achieving like, you know, sainthood or something like it felt awesome. Uh, I
1: mean, and, you, had, you had two right before that you had two missed product market fit businesses. And then yeah. so this this is the third, the third shot on goal. And like, I think a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs give up after the first and sometimes second failure. And uh, like getting that win, like that's, that's, you know, it, the more, the more shots on goal you get, the more, the more goals you're going to get.
0: This is the last company that I'm ever going to do, right? Like I'm pretty, pretty clear. Like I want to keep growing this till the day I die. Now we might do more products and we might buy companies at some point, and we might do more than staffing and recruitment in eight years or 10 years or 15 years or whatever. But this is, I'm never going to start something from zero again. I'm never going to sell this.
1: And wow, that's—I so, mean—in the tech world, that—that's a bold statement. I mean, there's a lot of uh, yeah, tech people that.
0: Thirty minutes before this demo, or ten minutes before this demo, uh, this uh, meeting uh, podcast started. I got an email from the second largest company in our segment uh, that reached out and asked if we'd be interested in talking to their—I uh, think their 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 managing director, CEO—about uh, considering being part of the basically an MA, uh M&A pitch, right? And we've had essentially all of our top three competitors reach out to us and the private equity funds that own them reach out to us at different times across the last two or three years, offering conversations and the answers the same. We're never selling.
1: Do you ever take Here. the meetings just to get like competitive intel or try to like learn about the process?
0: We 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 took one with one of our larger competitors, with with Bullhorn uh, just to have fun with them and then uh, we record all meetings which we we shared with the person we were talking to because they have to click on yes this meeting will be recorded and then I just sent it to everyone in my team just to have fun with what we talked about <laughs> because we basically said thank you for all the customers you're giving us <laughs> <laughs> our so largest customers are people that moved to us from Bullhorn and, that's hilarious I love that. Yeah. If if their customer success team hadn't failed those customers, I wouldn't have those extra millions of dollars of revenue.
1: Yeah. That's awesome. I love that. That's a great story. So, uh, all right. So back to recruit CRM. So, uh, you know, you made the pivot, you got, you know, you put out the landing page, you got those 30 signups, you know, you built the product, you had the Netherlands customer pay for it, and then you're off to the races. So like, what was like this journey from, that day that you built that Stripe integration to where you're at now, like, what did that journey look like?
0: Yeah, so so there's probably phases, right? Like, so in the beginning, we were just you you just do everything. You're ta- you're the product manager, you're the salesperson, you're the customer success manager, you're the engineer, and 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 the privilege of being in India is like you do you do you can start with lower cost talent, uh, but also like in the beginning, lower cost talent also means no experience talent, people that have just graduated from college. People that have never like like written code before, people that have never done anything before across all of your functions. And when you're bootstrapped, uh, you sort of have to like work with that talent. And a lot of that talent that we had back then is still with us. And they have truly grown. And some of them have gotten promoted multiple times and upskilled and learned and like also make they make 10, 15, 20 times what they started making, uh what they started at. Right. Um, uh, so the first 10 months were literally getting from zero dollars in revenue to 100k in revenue total uh, or, or per month or no 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 that was uh total so 10k a month basically it took us it took us 11 10 or 11 months to get to 10k a month it took us another 10 or 11 months to get to 50 a month, and then it took us another just about a year to get to 150k a month wow and then
1: so that's exponential think... growth like you're seeing oh, like yeah, the yeah. curve is yeah
0: so 10k 50k a um, monthly revenue right i'm talking monthly recurring revenue 10 50 150 300 something 500 something so on right like per month so just boop, 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 uh and so all the growth track... chart
1: like that is curved it's like exponential growth you're growing yeah. faster yeah. than a linear than a linear growth
0: chart yeah, yeah of course faster than linear growth though, though obviously like let's say the first year we grew 500% we're not growing 500% anymore right uh we're growing between like just under 100%. But like it, it's still it's still fast growth and uh we've never raised a dollar of venture capital or debt uh and we produce free cash flows everything. Congrats
1: day. man that's really uh that's that's unique. Uh a lot of yeah. a lot of SaaS companies that get to your size don't get there bootstrapped. Yeah.
0: We are we are net income positive, we are free cash flow positive. We we are cash we are positive in every financial metric that you can think of, right? Like we produce Profits slash cash, uh, and cash, and across all all metrics, you know, gap, non-gap, EBITDA, like whatever whatever way you want to measure cash, we make cash, right? Uh, and and we make a bunch of it, right? So it's not like five percent profit, right? It's, it's this is like thirty plus percent. Uh, it's awesome.
1: So so the going back to those kind of like growth milestones. So you talked about like the ten k MRR moment, the fifty k MRR moment, then you said yeah. like one fifty, then five hundred. Like what were the levers? That you saw on yeah, each yeah. stage.
0: So, and and another crazy thing happened right around COVID. Uh, my dad stopped doing what he was doing, which was mostly like a training and edu- education business. Uh, and he basically completely put his focus on this with me. So before he was more like a mentor, like co-founder, but mostly spending a day a week with us. Uh, when COVID hit and we were we were like half a million at that point in, in ARR almost. Uh, he completely moved to this and that helped us really scale because he had run companies at scale. So before that moment, it was basically me doing everything plus me being a manager of like a bunch of people. The big thing he did between the time we went from like 50 K a month to 150k K a month was we built, or we, we hired a lot of our directors, not all of them. Uh, And so these are basically people that ran our teams. And that helped us, over the last, because uh, when COVID happened, we were 25 people, now we're 200 plus people. And that's three years, right? Or three, three and a half years. And, and to go from being an individual contributor to a manager is a shift, because you have to like be cool delegating. But the key thing is how do you go from manager to manager of managers? So you're not telling someone to get the job done, you're telling someone what KPIs they need to do, and then they get the job done through a bunch of other people. And the moment you can get to that stage, the leverage increases exponentially. Because the moment you're a manager or managers, you can be, you can have multiple, you can add as many layers as you want, as long as you've set up the company the right way, as long as you've set up incentives, KPIs, uh, and and you, you have people aligned, not just on long term stuff like stock options, but more like how do you track variable pay, how do you in how are, how are people disincentivized to do things that are not good? So you start thinking more about like people people strategy and like what what are like drivers and like you know what incentives or disincentives you want to set up but if you set it right then you can scale because like it's it's gotten easier right so with 200 people the company is a lot lot easier to manage today than at 30 or 40 people and i'm yeah, sure.
1: Certain- it's an interesting paradox like i've i've even with my company i've seen the same thing like the bigger it gets the easier it is to manage uh, yeah, that, it's, it's an interesting that- paradox as an entrepreneur
0: like a, a twelve person company is far harder to manage than a twelve hundred person company. People don't get that, right? Because because guess what the, the a CEO of a 12, 1200 person company is a lot less stressed out, <laughs> uh, unless they made stupid decision and decisions and like over leveraged their business or raised money at a crazy valuation and, and and then they're they're stressed out for other reasons. But like if it's a profitable, decent, good business. A twelve-person business is far more stressful than like a two hundred-person business and a thousand-person business and so on. Because you set up, because to to truly do success the right way, you set up systems and processes so you don't have single points of failure. Yep,
1: absolutely. And uh, what? So what was like? What was your bottleneck? Was it building products? Was it you know sales? Was it marketing? Like what? What's like? What's the lever or like the bottleneck that yeah, slows talent. growth for you?
0: Talent. Yeah. Uh, so so basically having the right talent do the right things at the right time. So for example, we should have probably gone multilingual sooner. We should have started charging in like 15 different currencies sooner. We should have probably started having people in different countries sooner. This is our first year where we have people that speak Portuguese and French and so on and so forth, right? To serve different. And there's, uh, there's uh,
1: salespeople selling in those markets or their customer success or?
0: Both. both. Okay. Both customer success and sales, uh, different people, but but both, both worlds, right? We don't As need for that for the,
1: the engineering team. You can keep the engineering team in one locale. It doesn't matter.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the engineering team can be wherever you want, but your go-to-market team, all the way from the content and the blog posts you're creating to the ads you're doing to like the rep that's doing the sales demo to like the person who does onboarding and account management to the person that does chat support, those people need to be available in the language that your customer needs you to be in or your customers need to be in. Uh, and that, that's just one example, right? Another example is like, we could, we should have just started advertising a lot sooner and started spending money. Cause like we took a year to get to 10 grand a month or like just under a year because like we spent zero money on ads, zero. And so every single person we got, we got through like the shitty like SEO I had done. And then another person we just graduated, great guy, but we just, he just graduated from college back then. And like whatever he could figure out, right? And so we were like, hey, now it's, you know, now we're doing 10 grand a month. It's taken forever. Let's do ad- ads. And we've spent like maybe 10 or 20 grand a month in ads back then. And in 12 months, we were 5X. And if we hadn't done that, we'd probably not go from 10 to 50 and 50 to 150. We'd probably go from 10 to 25. And then uh, we'd probably been a lot slower, right? And and even, and, and then there are some situations where you go overboard, right? You try to spend too much money. And then you realize, hey, like, Advertising is diminishing returns. It's not like you spend 5x and you get 5x the leads. But there's some things you just learn as you do them, and as you test those thresholds. Uh, same thing with talent, right? Like we, our, our big struggle was we were really good at getting people, making sure they're trained and deploying them, but we didn't have any managers because we hired all of these fresh college graduates. So we had to hire managers from outside and then we had to do a lot of Training for existing folks to turn some of the more experienced people over three, four, five years into managers, uh, which we're still sort of doing. Right, we still have people that have become managers that started their careers here, essentially, and not
1: that's so here. awesome. Yeah, I love I love that 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 aspect of your story of you know kind of like taking these really junior level people at the start of their career and you know yeah
0: yeah N- not junior fresh like they've never this this is their first job but like for. About seventy-five to eighty percent of our team. This is their first job ever, first real adult well, job, across all functions.
1: Yeah, I, I love that story. That's uh, you basically built the people you needed for your company. Like they grew yeah. like, as your company grew, your team and your talent grew yeah. to be what what your company
0: needed. Yeah. Now, now this is very counter counterintuitive, and people take offense at this. But like. Uh, Manage, ma- managerial talent is different, right? So once someone becomes an executive and they're managing teams and missions and so on, and you're running a team of five, 10, 12, 15 people, it's different and you need certain, you need maturity and skills to like get there. But I believe if I hire a fresh graduate and I train them for a year to become a salesperson or a customer success manager or a software individual contributor, software engineer, they will they will be more productive at the end of that year then someone I hire from the market, probably at like a 30, 40, 50% premium, who has five or six years of experience, who's still an individual contributor, uh, who's now going to spend a quarter to learn how we do stuff, which is, which is fine. But post that quarter, they will still be less productive or equally productive and not more productive.
1: than the person that, you know, so you're saying after the first year, like you need a full year to kind of get that fresh person up to speed, but the fresh person uh, will be more productive after a year, you're saying?
0: So the first person will be more productive after a year than what a lateral hire is after three or four months.
1: Yeah. Interesting. So it's really investing.
0: But it's not, right? So what we do is we hire college graduates on internships six months before they graduate from college and they start working with us part-time those six months of college. And then by the time they graduate, six more months, they're awesome. And sometimes by the time they graduate, they're already awesome. And college graduates, if I put out a job post, I can recruit a bunch of college graduates in about two, three, four weeks, right? Because we have a full-blown HR team that just moves us. We, we deal with it pretty well. Uh,
1: but how, how do I, they get like, there's a lot of experience that, you know, in a software developer role, there's a lot of just general experience that comes with training. time.
0: We just, and we, the first six months are just training. We just teach them stuff. They, we pay them to learn stuff. They don't write any production code. So we have people that have interned with us for six months, no production code, just training. How do we do this? What framework do we use? Why do we use it that way? Because we hire a bunch of them, right? So two weeks ago, we hired 50 fresh college graduates in engineering. That's just- Do you
1: keep them focused on like a specific module or component of the application or do you show them like the entire ecosystem? The entire
0: thing. The entire thing. And then they get deployed on a specific module, on, on a squad or team that works in a specific module, but they learn about like all the tech we use. The whole thing, yeah.
1: I know. Is it like, are they full stack? Are they getting into DevOps and infrastructure? No. Or?
0: And then they start specializing. So well, by the time they finish the internship and they graduate from college, they're assigned to like DevOps team or front-end team or back-end team or like communication software, like that that part of our software so on.
1: Okay. And uh, are you guys all all co-located in, in one office or do you work remote? No,
0: all remote. Uh, all, all remote. We are in uh, the 200 people are in like 80 or 90 separate locations.
1: Wow, and then how how do they do they like pair with like these interns? Do they pair with somebody as they're getting yes, ramped up? There's
0: there's there's a one there's a manager who's responsible for your training, but then you also get a mentor who has been through the same program a year before, and like every three or four kids get a mentor, so that the mentors tend to be the top twenty percent of last year's cohort, largely. Interesting.
1: Yeah, it's a cool model. I really like that. And that you're, you're saying is. that that's been uh, like that that model that you're saying yeah. like people take offense to that for some reason.
0: No, no, no. People people take offense that but when I say that someone fresh out of college a year in is as good as like someone who spent eight years working somewhere and is an individual contributor. Yeah. I mean my my like gut if, if they are though if they are the person who's an individual contributor at who's 30 years old, they take offense. the, yeah, of the
1: individual of contributor yeah. takes offense. Yeah. I, I my gut on that tells me that it might be more the exception to the rule but i think you have to be like really really good at picking the shooting stars early like yeah. you're, so you're kind of are, betting on the person
0: no 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 so we had we had 50 people join us 2 weeks ago we had 76,000 applications
1: so you're very selective basically basically is what what yeah, i was saying yeah this is
0: like a higher selective what was what was that less than 0.1%
1: yeah so how how like what's what's the quality? So to find those fifty like shooting stars that are capable of getting up to speed in one year and performing better than someone with five years of experience after one year, what's the quality we, that you look for we, in, in those people
0: we, we, we test them so we first give them a technical test, they pass the technical test. then once they pass the technical test, we give them like a take home project. so they have to like spend hours writing code if they don't want to great, good for them, but like we need them to do that so they need to write they need to spend five, six, seven hours, however, however long it takes them, to come up with logic or a solution. Then they submit that code. We check it for plagiarism. If it's legit, we then uh, do an HR interview with them. The HR team does a behavioral interview because we've mapped what our top engineering talent looks like in terms of personality traits. Now that's that's now that part is a trade secret. But like, so we we do uh, BEIs behavioral interviews, and then we figure out if they are like one of the 10, 12, 15 profiles we have for what an engineer needs to be like, what, what their quirks are, so on. If if they fit that mold, we send them to an engineering group interview. Then if they're okay in the group interview, they do another interview with the head of engineering. If they're okay with that, then they do an interview with one of the founders. Uh, for engineering, it's normally my dad. For, uh, at this point, for product managers, sales, customer success, it's me. So we, we run different functions at this point where we do like a fit interview, and then they become an intern. So there,
1: then, there's like, that, like the way you just described that, it was very like process, like this is step one, this is step two, this is step three, yeah, but yeah, there's yeah, got to yeah, be yeah. like something in there that's like, there's got to, maybe it's the people that you have doing this, but there's got to be like something in that yeah. flow that's like exceptional and special. Because I I, I do think that what, what you're saying, like hiring 50 fresh people out of college and turning yeah. them all into like 10x engineers.
0: But we don't, we don't turn all of them into 10x engineers. Uh, out of those 50 people, we end up retaining like 30, 32. At the end of the internship.
1: That's still damn good, man. over half. Like that's that's really yeah, there's yeah, something well like half. uh there's yeah. something exceptional in your selection process, I think, that uh that makes it like really special.
0: But see, most other companies cannot do this because it's too much of a time investment. Like it's just too much time. Like this this stuff takes like like the first year we did this, we literally spent over 50% of every single person's time in the company doing either hiring or training kids. Cause like kids need a lot of attention. And you can only do this if, like I'm gonna run this company till I die, right? So I'm looking at this from like a 50-year horizon, right? I'm about to be 30, I can do this till I'm like 78, 80, whatever. So if if you have like a three-year horizon or a five-year horizon, this is a waste of time, right? You should just raise a bunch of money, hire a bunch of experienced people and do your job. But if if you're not thinking about your business in years, but in decades, this works you have batch after batch, and it gets easier over time, but it's 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 really painful to do, right? So it, for example, if you're a venture back company, the chances of this working zero percent. If you're a private equity back company, zero percent. There's there's no there's no patience, right? The capital doesn't have patience. Your capital needs to have like crazy patience to be able to like make the math work.
1: But that's what I was d- saying. It's kind of like investing, like what you're doing with people. Yeah. You're investing in people.
0: Yeah. Guess what? The the crazy thing is like these kids aren't even productive after one year. Most of them, like truly productive, right? Truly killing it. Most of them truly kill it their second, third, fourth year. And then some of them quit. Some of them go to master's for college and so on. Like, you know, they they go from India to, to America or whatever. So you have all of that happen. But, but the thing is, we're betting that the few we can keep will be worth like the, you know, uh, everyone else that we're not able to keep.
1: Yeah, you might keep like ten or fifteen of those, like truly, truly rock over, stars. over years,
0: over multiple years, over three or four yeah. Five years. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes. yeah. And they'll yeah, end it's up really become-
1: interesting. Uh, it's a really interesting approach. I mean, that's like in the U.S., there's a lot of companies that do that, but they're more like the big consulting firms, like Accenture or Deloitte. Yeah. You know, like that. This that's is, their
0: model. This is exactly what a a Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley does with their analyst program. You grill the shit out of people a small percentage of them stay, become associates, a small percentage of them stay, become VPs, executive directors, whatever, then become senior VPs then become MDs, same model. It's just that most tech companies don't have the patience to do this because it takes forever. And it requires you to invest a lot of capital into your people operations slash HR function, and then also spend essentially 50% of all your non-Fresh graduates time into training Fresh graduates which most companies aren't willing to do because that basically means for the next year, all of the sprints you're doing, you're going to be only able to do half the stuff because like the other half is going training people. But then in a year, you have way more productive talent than you did this year. But then you can double down and invest again and hire a bunch more people. And then you can do it again and again and again. And at some point, you have a crazy amount of like talent dividends.
1: It's like comp- yeah, it's compounding. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I, I love it. I, yeah, I love what you're kids,
0: doing. Yeah, and because the, the crazy thing is, these kids we hire aren't as useful at another company. They're good. They're, they'll still be good engineers, but like the thing is, you've gone through because you've done a year and a half of training for our platform, our tech stack, our way of name like our naming conventions, our like you know our like this is super tailored talent, which is why we're able to make it work. So. This person is better than an eight-year WorkEx IC at my company. Now, if 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 this person had to go to another company and compete with a another eight-year individual contributor, they would they'd, they'd be worse. But I don't care, right? I care about what they're like for my company. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Now, now they'd be just as good as that eight-year IC after another eight years. Like, so that's that's fine. But the thing is, that extra advantage is something that I get because we've spent time nurturing them for our process.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that's awesome. So let's uh let's change gears. I, I love everything about that. That's that's such a cool uh, you know, spin. Like I you're you're right. I don't think a lot of tech companies do that talent nurture model. So I, I, I love that feel. you're doing it.
0: It doesn't work for most companies, right? Like it's statistically, like if you need to do an IPO in 24 months, it doesn't work. If you need to raise a round in 12 months, it doesn't work. If you need to sell your company, it doesn't work. If you have a board that asks you why you aren't making certain progress every quarter, it doesn't work, right? It it works when you can be a basic, basic dictatorship at your company and say, hey, I'm going to do this over the next 10 years, suck it up.
1: Yeah, it's like, it gets- and it's it, that that's kind of like it's a good segue. I was going to ask you about KPIs because a lot of a lot of these SaaS companies that are venture backed are tracking things like, you know, top line, you know, quarter over quarter or year over year growth, they're looking at CAC, they're looking at, you know, capital efficiency in the business, you know, net dollar retention, that kind of stuff like these types you of You
0: look at, You look at all of the same met- most of the same metrics. Uh, it's just that for us cash flow is an important metric. Right, because we're bootstrapped, so we basically our bank balance has been built up by our, by our own cash flow. So our core metric is that every month the bank balance needs to go up. Like that's a simple, it's a very simple formula. EBITDA right? every month. Yeah, but ca- not even EBITDA cash flow, because EBITDA can still be fake, right? Because you can have appreciation and stuff. Like actual core raw cash, you need to have more money in your bank. Like the number in your bank account when you refresh the app. On the first of every month needs to be more than it was the first of last month. Like that's the most core KPI we have, uh, which it is. Like we've we, our bank balance has gone up every single month since we've been in existence, right? Almost, uh, and so so that's that's one thing. So that's our core metric, and everything else we still track. We still track year over year growth rate. We still track you know pay you know payback period. Uh, we don't really care about lifetime value because that's an irrelevant metric, uh, but we we care about how long it takes us to get back cash that we spend to acquire a customer. CAC is important. What's your payback
1: Uh, period typically? Like what what do you think is a good target for that metric?
0: It depends on what, like every every company can have their own own targets. We like to keep it at six months.
1: Okay. Yeah, that's like, I think a pretty average one. I was was curious if you were gonna say much lower than that or? uh...
0: No, six months.
1: I saw a metric recently that Salesforce uh, J curve is another way of saying payback period. Their J curve is like, is... like four years or something,
0: uh, something crazy. Yeah, it's uh, crazy. but that's not for, that's only recent. Like last year, it was that high. Uh, but normally, Salesforce, I believe, is like a eighteen to twenty four month payback period. It's but they're also, doing, yeah, but they're only doing enterprise deals, so it works out because if almost all of your customers are hundred k or more and they on an average stay with you for like ten years, then so like it's fine. Uh, Not ideal, but like if you have Salesforce's balance sheet, you can you can fund it, and and the math works out. But like, you know, if you don't have third, you know, you don't have billions of dollars in your balance sheet, and you don't do thirty billion in recurring revenue that you can count down for next year, you probably can't go as crazy. uh, Yeah, it's
1: interesting. So, uh, so, so you're saying like you're you're tracking J curve payback period, you're tracking cash flow, you're tracking year over year growth, and was there any other key? Metrics that you really pay attention to,
0: net dollar retention,
1: net dollar retention, yeah, nice, yeah, yeah. that's awesome. So, uh,
0: yeah, cool, and and... 100%, right? Like that's that's a very uh, ours is well over hundred percent. But like the 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 concept is this: if we stop selling, we need to be growing at least marginally every year, even if we stop signing up new customers, because that means that we don't have a leaky bucket. So net of churn, our expansions need to still grow our base, and as long as you're there, I think as a SaaS company, you're, you're in good shape.
1: So I, and, and that's that's a good uh, you know timely topic to bring up because I think a lot of SaaS companies have been experiencing over the last you know twelve to eighteen months the yeah. leaky bucket case, yeah. you know, for a couple of reasons. One, you know, the 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 money supply is dried up, but you know, so that's venture that affects venture back companies. Not so much, you know, a problem for you. But the uh, um, the other problem is like a, churn and seat it's churn. Problem.
0: It's a problem for our customers though, because our customers are recruitment agencies. And a lot of them recruit for venture back companies that haven't yeah. been recruited anymore for the last 12 months. And thus they get impacted way more in a bad market. So that's uh, the
1: churn and seat churn. Like the churn is like customers just you know, going out of business so, so, or...
0: Yeah, so we've 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 had a lot less expansion and a lot more seat contraction on a lot of our customers. So let's say in a normal year, we'd be 120% net dollar retention. Now we're just barely a few percentage points over 100, which is a huge difference, right? Before, if we would grow like 20% a year without selling to anybody, Now we'll grow like 3% a year or 4% a year without selling to anybody, which is massive difference, right? Uh, But we're still fine mathematically.
1: Yeah. Can you, uh, for the listeners, can you explain net dollar retention? I think a lot of them probably know it, but can you explain how the formula for that?
0: Yeah, sure, sure. So there's like a simple way to think about it is there's three things you need to care about. There's what we call gross customer retention. Gross dollar retention, net dollar retention, right? NDR. Gross customer retention is what percentage of the customers you had last year or last month, or whatever way you want to do it, month over month, year over year, quarter over quarter, that you still have today. So let's say you have a hundred customers paying you two bucks each. Now let's say 10 of them have canceled. You have 180 bucks. So you have 90%. Uh, net customer retention, or you have 10% net customer churn, right? Or gross customer churn. Then you have gross dollar retention or gross dollar churn. Now these are both like, the question is, are you counting how much it's subtracted or how much is left? But basically not all your customers pay you the same amount of money. So this metric is a little higher value because it helps you track what percentage of your revenue from last year you maintained. Because you might have had a hundred customers last year, but one of them paid you fifty bucks. So the question is did that person churn or not? because if they churn you're down 50 plus percent if they're not, then you're probably not as down. So that's again in a percentage. you could have you could you could for example lose 30 percent of your customers but only lose 15 percent of your revenue because only the small ones churned or if you're in a terrible situation, it could be the other way around. Now net dollar retention is a very important the most important number out of these three. Net dollar retention can be more than 100, and it can be more than 100 because it adds back revenue for customers that have spent more with you this year. Customers can spend more with you by buying more seats, by upgrading to a more expensive tier or addition, by buying additional add-ons from you, technically through a price increase as well, though that's frowned upon and you can't technically just keep doing price increases every year. Um, And so those are three ways you can add it back. So for example, let's say I had hundred customers. They were paying me one buck each, Uh, 20 of them canceled. So I have 80 bucks left, but those 80 customers this year are spending 50% more. They're spending a buck and a half each on an average because they bought a bunch of add-ons, bought more seats, upgraded to a more expensive edition. Now they're spending 120 bucks. So in that case, gross revenue churn is 20%, but net revenue retention is 120% because it's actually gone up. Did that help?
1: Yeah, that's great. Yeah, thank you. So um so that that's like I think uh a lot a lot of SaaS companies I think are moving to that as a core metric. I think it's you know, there's been a lot of focus on like year over year growth, and there's been a lot of focus on uh, you know, like uh CAC and stuff like that. But I think, you know, in EBITDA, we talked about like cash flows and EBITDA, a lot of those metrics can be games. So I think the net dollar retention is definitely more of a focus these
0: days. For, for pure non-infrastructure software companies that don't really run data centers and stuff, EBITDA is a irrelevant metric because you have nothing to depreciate. You're not buying, like maybe, maybe outside of your office, which shouldn't be that big an expense as a percentage of revenue for a SaaS business. You don't really. It's not like you're setting up a new factory that you need to depreciate every year, right? You're de- what like the only thing we depreciate as a company is, is laptops, right? Like MacBooks that everyone gets. So that's like a very small number. So like, earnings before tax and depreciation is like I I feel like not as relevant for a software business. For a software business, you should just be looking at pre-cash flow net that income. That's
1: it. I mean there's there's some cases like amortization of expenses or revenue and like recognition and stuff like that. So there's there's some cases where like that can True. make sense. Uh, so you can like smooth out your metrics over, you know, cuz like you might have ARR like people might pay less to get like a yearly fee to like yeah. maybe they'll pay you once yearly to get like a discount. So but then like maybe you have lumpy months so you want to amortize that and then that affects like your profit reporting.
0: It would still be covered in net income, though. So if you're doing annual net income, and if someone's paid you up, in, so in cash flow it would still show up because in cash flow it would what would basically show up is how much cash you've collected versus how much you've paid out. So you're sorted on cash flow, uh, and obviously the cash flow is not amortized. It is just how much you've collected and how much you've paid. So nothing's amortized or depreciated. And in net income, you're just counting the amount of um, amount of revenue you've realized anyway. So if someone gives you like an annual subscription in December and you count ninety three percent of it next year it counts in next year's net income. So as long as your net income and cash flow are both positive, you're probably in good shape. If one of them are negative, you need to have another look at, at what your numbers are unless you have a big war chest.
1: Yep. yep. Absolutely. Uh so one one last thing I wanted to close out with you on uh so you've been hopping back and forth between India and Dubai. Uh Dubai yeah. is like a it's like a rocket ship right now for startups, from what I hear. I had another guy from uh, Dubai on the pod recently, and uh, I just heard actually I was listening to uh, All In Pod, and I, I think Jason Calacanis is in Dubai right now doing a launch fund. Uh, event. What's that? Dubai's
0: an, market. Dubai's, an, Dubai's an insane market. I was in Dubai like literally twelve, fourteen hours ago. Right? I'll be back in a month, and then I'll I'll be there for for the next six months after.
1: Are uh, you after like? The- Part living there part time,
0: um, seven to eight months a year. Okay, so seven to eight months a year in Dubai, uh, two months in India, and then uh, two months traveling either in the UK or like basically in London or New York.
1: So what's uh? uh, So first, what's bringing you to Dubai? But then second, let's like go into that ecosystem there.
0: Zero zero, zero percent tax.
1: Okay, (laughs) so so it's uh favorable to to be there seven months a year.
0: Yeah, if you're not a venture back company and you're bootstrapped and you make cash flow and you make profit, uh, and you want to pay yourself a reasonable salary because you make profits and you don't want that salary to get taxed, uh, you become uh, you you live in Dubai. Now it's harder to do as a U.S. citizen. I'm not a U.S. citizen, so it doesn't like impact me because the U.S. is one of the few countries in the world that taxes you based on citizenship. Which means even if you go to Dubai, you're still getting taxed uh, by the IRS. Uh, and i'm sure so have to be a uae
1: out. citizen or something or uh, how do you
0: you just don't have to be a us citizen oh, okay <laughs> you can be a citizen of any other almost any other country in the world cuz most other countries tax you based on whether you live there or not so if you're from the uk or you're from india you you get tax your 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 global income is taxed in india if you live in india for more than 180 days a year if you don't live in india or the uk or in germany or most of europe uh, for more than 180 days, and you're like living there a couple months a year, you're only taxed on the income you make from that country. So like for example, if you get a salary locally there, or like if you have like investments and they give you a dividend or something. But if you're an American citizen, you're taxed on global income, no matter where you live, because you're taxed not based on where you're a resident, but you're taxed based on the fact that you're American. Did you move
1: your C Corp to UAE?
0: No, 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 no. So my my C Corp's my C-corp's still in the U.S. Uh, but my C corp, uh, sort of one, my C corp can still pay me a salary, right? Or it can pay me like consulting fees because I'm still managing the business. And we're too small for it to matter at this point. Uh, but let's let's say let's say you take a few hundred thousand dollars uh, as a salary or as a consulting fee or something, which is which you would reasonably take if you were if if you were in the U.S. as well. Uh, here you get taxed at zero percent. Uh, in the U.S., you'd get taxed on like whichever state you were in. Now, do you I still have to
1: pay a... corporate taxes in the U.S. for having a yes, base there.
0: Yeah, yes, yes, yes. But you normally don't make as much profit in the U.S. because we we also have subsidiaries in other countries. Because half our revenue is in is in Europe, so we build that revenue in Europe itself in Ireland directly.
1: Oh, cool! That's awesome. Yeah, it yeah. gets like I've I've heard of all the. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
0: I'd recommend consulting a tax tax attorney before, like, doing any of this stuff. Yeah, uh,
1: I, I've heard of a lot of people that have companies set up like this. I have a few friends that do it, and it's uh, it definitely gets, like, complicated. You have to understand, you know, tax yeah. law in you multiple places. Make sure places. it's
0: legal, right? Because the last thing you want to do is be shady uh, with the IRS or any other authority. But, like, there's, there's ways to set it up where you can reduce the tax burden. So there's, like... It, You'll still pay some tax in some places because uh, your company will make some profit that you you pay in tax and so on, but you can still pay less.
1: Yeah, the the place that everyone does it in the U.S. is Puerto Rico. Uh, so many people move to Puerto Rico because it's like zero percent or like one percent, you know, federal tax or something down there. Yes, it's super low. Yeah, I,
0: I I don't know what it is like in Puerto Rico, but for most, I, I imagine for most U.S. citizens, it's a, it's a good bet.
1: Yeah, a lot of people move there. I mean, you know, I, I've I've had this debate with so many people. Uh, like, I, I live in Philadelphia. So I've had a bunch of friends, like some actually move there, some are considering moving there. And they're like, Oh, this is how much money I can save on taxes. And then the debate is always like, yeah, but like, do you, do you want to like, is that, you know, for some people, they might want to live in Puerto Rico. Awesome. Like, go live there that, you know, that's where you should be. But if, <laughs> if you're just moving there for the taxes, and you're not actually like, yeah. if, would you rather would you have a better quality of life in Philadelphia or New York sure. or San Francisco and pay more in taxes or uh, is, you know, like that's the debate.
0: So, so I, I I believe you, most people would live, uh, most people who have were who successful or reasonably successful live, would live a better quality of life in Dubai than almost anywhere else in the world. What, how so? What Why would you say? The infrastructure is better. The roads in Dubai uh, are better. Simply far superior to the roads in the U.S. Uh,
1: well, I live in Philly, man, so we
0: have pretty pretty shitty roads here. <laughs> but no matter where in the U.S. you go, like I have never, I've I've been to college in the Midwest in Indiana. I've I've, I've been to New York. I've been to San Francisco. I've been to L.A. You cannot compare, right? It's it's, it's orders of magnitude better.
1: It's all new uh, there. Everything's in the last couple decades.
0: Built in the last couple decades, uh, the roads are new. Uh, the the buildings are bigger, taller, better cleaner look more premium look nicer uh there's a lot of staff because uh, because of the way the country is set up there's almost basically free movement of talent and labor so like they have lots of people from india from bangladesh from philippines uh, imported in uh to do all sorts of jobs right like drive cars and drive buses and like uh the the metro in dubai if i'm not wrong is is driverless so oh, you, know, wow. you don't worry about a Uh, You know it's it's a it's, uh, machine uh, going or or the trams driverless or both. If just just check it. Uh, the the malls are better and nicer. They're bigger. There, there's very less nature right outside of like the marina and like the yachts and all the fun stuff. Uh, but it, it like in terms of raw quality of life, if if you're reasonably successful in 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 a Western market you can have a higher quality of life with the same amount of money in Dubai. Like you could, you can have like a chef and like everything else that you want.
1: Wow. And then uh, the startup scenes, we started to talk about that. It's like, apparently it's like cooking over there. I haven't been, but
0: I'm uh, curious. I, I what haven't, I've I've personally not been involved in the startup scene per se in Dubai or in India <laughs> to that because we've built this company bootstrapped and remote and we've not necessarily gone to the, as many mixers and events we haven't tried to participate in the community in that sense in india or in dubai to be honest
1: but you don't you know. i mean i was you know i was just in san francisco a few weeks like you don't have to try to participate in the scene like just being there you can just you can just feel like the energy you, you know you go out to a restaurant like you know the table next to you is talking about something that they're about to launch. Like you just, you feel like the energy that's happening there.
0: So so in in Dubai, people are always hustling because everyone's there to hustle, to be honest. Uh, Because more than I, I believe in the UAE as a whole, it's like 85%. But in Dubai specifically, which is an emirate or a state within the UAE, it's like 90 plus percent of people are expats, which means you're there on a work permit. So you're there to work. So 90% of the people there are there to like either start a business, run a business, do a job, so on and so forth, and to make money basically. So everyone's always hustling. So no matter where you go, people are people are doing businesses, but it's not necessarily tech businesses. So there's a great tech, tech business scene there and there's tech startups. Uh, but for example, the real estate and hospitality scene there is a lot, lot bigger because there's a lot more money in Dubai in luxury goods, yachts, yeah, hotels, and that,
1: yachts, and helicopters. And
0: yeah, yeah, that that, that sort of, so that economy is a lot larger, because everyone from all over the world is coming there uh, to like, sort of experience luxury, right? From what
1: goods. I understand, though, it's like the market is kind of being fueled by this capital allocation from the, uh, you know, the, the uh, oil families. So the families that, you know, historically have been investing in, you know, Uh, oil refining and
0: and... like, so, so the UAE doesn't have something called oil families in that sense, because the UAE is led by seven families that run the seven states. So they're essentially monarchs, uh, absolute monarchs. And there's, uh, and, and again, right, I'm no expert on this, but like, there's basically a council of seven monarchs from one representative of each family that runs the country, essentially uh and decide laws and one of the emirates which is abu dhabi which is the capital of the uae uh they own i think some they control something like eight to ten percent of the world's oil reserves and so that money has basically funded a lot of this infrastructure because you know they've been very forward forward looking slash forward thinking in the sense that they know the oil is not going to last forever so they've used all the oil money and they continue to use all the oil money to build this world-class infrastructure services hospitality hotels Jets, yachts, so on and so forth, uh, right? And now people go, like for example, Dubai specifically. I think I think the number number I was reading was, it's it's a low single digit percent of GDP in Dubai that's oil or energy or any kind of commodity. It's almost all tourism and services and financial services. Cause Interesting. Like Interesting. Um, okay. Also, a big port for because they're tax free port, right? So a lot of goods and services. Uh, there's a lot of services inside on the mainland, but like there's a lot of goods that travel through the ports because uh, they have built world-class infrastructure for that as well for ships and containers and so on, so on and so forth. So, so Dubai specifically, no oil money. It's just like now it's just pure commercial, commercial hub. Uh, uh, Abu Dhabi is still a lot of oil, uh, a lot of energy, and I think the country as a whole is like something like fifty percent of the GDP is oil and fifty percent is. Of the united arab emirates as a whole is oil versus everything else and it's every year like inches more towards non-oil so that i i'm I'm guessing their hope is like by 2040 or 50 when oil is relevant they've completely like removed the dependency on oil
1: they have some reports out i've read some reports about this like multi-decade plan to uh sort of diversify the the income streams and the the you know gdp yeah, i
0: i think the uae is completely sorted on it it's probably saudi arabia that's going to have like a take a more effort to do that cuz yeah. their oil is a much larger percentage of their gdp in a sense
1: and U- uae uh, i think is like probably an easier place for this like kind of uh, diversification to happen probably cuz they're I, my understanding is they're more of like a westernized culture i guess or more
0: westernized uh, more more tolerant um Religiously, you know, more more flexible, tolerant, tolerant understanding. Whatever word you want to use. Uh, so they they're they're. I'd say the UAE is probably the most forward looking country in that part of the world in the in, in the Middle East, and they've embraced w- whatever they think they need to do to succeed, and they've been doing it pretty well. Awesome.
1: Well, Sean, this was a this is a great time having you on, man. I really enjoyed our conversation today.